Hello and happy new year. Welcome to the first episode of 2021 of the Thrive and Learn podcast. Today I'm talking to Elliot Haspel, the author of the book Crawling Behind. Full disclosure, I was going to air this episode later in the month, uh, but Elliot and I both reflected on the events at the Capitol um, on January 6th, Wednesday, um, in the episode, so I thought it was important to fast-track the publication of this episode and rethink my scheduling for this month. Um, So... I'm going to save my updates about public policy for the interview because Elliot and I cover so much uh, related to public policy uh, and childcare. For my self-care update though, I um, honestly, I wish I had better advice. Maybe you can tell from the tone of my voice, but I'm, I'm still processing um, yesterday. Well, by the time you hear this, it'll be two days ago. Um, so I think maybe what was working for me was tuning out with some fiction. What books are you listening to or reading? I gotta tell you, I just finished The Vanishing Half. It was a Christmas present from my sister and I read it in two days. I guess the only thing I can recommend is, um, tune out. You know what? Just tune out. Tune out a little bit read some fiction, watch a show, maybe a show you've already seen because you find it comforting or maybe it's your favorite. But uh, take care and let's just get through this week, shall we? Um, Without further ado, here's Elliot and I discussing, well, the first six days of 2021, which are already a lot. Okay. All right, Elliot, we're going to dive right in. Because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, so today on the podcast, we have Elliot Haspel. Elliot is the early childhood policy expert and commentator and the author of Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. He started his career as a fourth grade public school teacher in Arizona. Following his time in the classroom, he earned a master's degree in education policy from Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Elliot has worked in numerous policy and advocacy roles, including as the on-staff policy analyst for the Virginia Early Childhood Foundation. He currently works as the program officer for education policy and research at the Robbins Foundation, one of Virginia's largest and oldest philanthropic foundations where he oversees the foundation's early childhood and state policy advocacy portfolios. Elliot's writings have been featured on numerous mediums, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, and he has appeared as an analyst on the television programs, including the PBS NewsHour. He lives in Richmond, Virginia with his wife and two spirited young daughters. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you so much for having me. We have been mutuals on Twitter for a while now, and this is like our first real conversation, and I'm so, so excited about it. I read your book. I'm so excited about all of its content. Um, I have also been in like early childhood policy for a while, and uh, you brought a new perspective for me that I'm I'm really excited about. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to covering it with you, but... Uh, We're recording this on January 7th. Uh, Yesterday, some extremists stormed the Capitol, 
in an effort to what I can imagine is delay the certification of the electoral college votes, uh, ensuring a peaceful transition of power. So I'm going to be fully transparent in saying that I bombarded Elliot with email going like wavering back and forth as to whether or not I wanted to talk this morning because I, I have a lot of feelings <laughs> and I, I feel like we, we're just going to have to process this yeah. together and talk about how this is affecting uh, children and families. Mm -hmm. So do you have any reflections about this week and kind of the moment that we're in uh, right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably like you, it's very raw. Um, I have a lot of, of anger and a lot of um, grief in some ways so that we've reached this moment. Um, you know, I think I, I take very much uh, the, the commentators and I think particularly people of color have been saying like, we can't say this isn't who we are because clearly this is who we are and who we've been for a very long time. But I think to see it thrown in such sharp relief yesterday um, was really, um, it's just really depressing in some ways. So, you know, and I think right now, thinking about how do we respond and not just go back to business as usual, everyone retreat to your corners, like that's, um, you know, that's really top of my mind. I think too often when this happens, that's exactly what we do. You know, everyone's horrified in the moment and then you get to the second day story and then it's the talking points and everyone gets aligned. And then by the third day story, you know, it's, you know, we're off in two different worlds again. And I really, really hope that doesn't happen this time. Because what we just saw was a, an assault on our, you know, yeah, I, our democracy. I am such a, a passionate and an, emo I'm an emotional person. And it's, it really is something um, how quickly we're expected to process things so dramatic and just like jump back into the work. And I, I really wanted to talk about it because I was really grappling with how you and I were going to have a conversation about being an advocate for early childhood and childcare policy when the halls we walk to do that in looked really scary to me yesterday. And, you know, I tried to convince early childhood educators to stay involved and share their story, but it really doesn't look like a fun thing to do right now. So it's a lot to juggle. So, um, I, I needed, I felt like we needed to acknowledge it because yeah. uh, we can't pretend it's not happening while we're mm -hmm. having these conversations about yeah. policy that's going to affect families. And, you know, everyday young children are probably going to go to their childcare classrooms today, maybe not understanding what happened, but understanding that the adults in their lives are under stress. Yes. Um, we know that. You wrote a lot about that in your book, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I'm, um, I'm very excited to talk about, and I love your proposal. Um, so in Crawling Behind, you talk a lot about, honestly, my generation, the millennial generation, um, and how we have witnessed so much tragedy, um, including the Great Recession and now the coronavirus pandemic, and now we dealt with this yesterday. Uh, so you talk a little bit about how the American dream seems to be dead. So can you <laughs> elaborate on that a little bit and kind of how it relates to our ability to start families yeah. and um, our access to childcare? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the reasons I actually got into writing this book to begin with was I have young children, as you mentioned, um, and then talking to my, you know, peers who have young children and, you know, I, 
privileged and enough to have most of my peer group are, you know, basically middle or upper middle class, you know, professional in the sense of like um, professional class in the sense of having professional degrees, you know, master's level degrees, um, married, you know, couples in their early 30s. And, you know, as ever having more and more of those conversations and the struggle to pay bills, the struggle to buy a house, the struggle to care for uh, elderly or ailing parents, um, and the childcare being such a massive anchor around their ankles really is like one of the things that stood out to me is that, um, you know, childcare for so long in this country has been seen, honestly, in a welfare frame, right? It's, it's something we need provide assistance for, for uh, lower income families. Um, but the fact is for middle and upper middle class, you know, parent, there would be parents as well. It's this massive problem because it's sapping your ability, not only the current money that you have, but also sapping the ability to save, to invest, to build wealth, to, you know, provide you preventative maintenance. It doesn't cost you more money later. Um, you know, and all of these things put together, it puts an enormous amount of stress on uh, on families, and that is, you know, to your point, did not make people want to go out and have babies uh, necessarily. And so, one of the things that's really depressing, I think, about the current state of, of America is not only that our birth rate is at a historic low, but that there's this big gap between where people say the number of children they want to have and the number of children they're actually having. When you ask them why is there that gap, the number one reason they will tell you is because it costs too much to have a kid, and of those costs, the number one cost is childcare. Can you uh, detail for me a little bit without ruining your book, because I'm going to wrap this up by recommending it. Uh, so without, you know, getting too much into detail, if you could give us like a high level summary of your proposal, because I, I'm in love with it. I think it's really, I think it's a new perspective that, you know, we in the field have not really even considered too much. Uh, our focus has, we do have a quality crisis right now. And I feel yeah. like as I'm, as I'm embedded in the childcare system, like that's where my focus is. But I think that your proposal is really interesting. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so my proposal is basically to empower parents to be able to choose the care situation that's gonna work for them and their families. And to do that by handing them a very large sum of money to basically zero out their costs. Um, you know, I think we talk a lot about in the field more recently about childcare as a public good and it should be. Um, mm -hmm. which I completely agree with. And public goods are things obviously like, you know, public schools, fire departments, roads, things we don't pay for beyond our taxes. The interesting thing about childcare though, is that in the early years, there's such a variety of parental preference and parental need that if you actually start by centering families, instead of necessarily centering an institution of a given childcare center or something like that, um, in my mind, that drives you towards a, a different policy road, where you're still trying to put enough new money into the system so you can actually pay educators well, you have all the quality you know, pieces in place that you want. But if you go into it by empowering parents, which I think that's much more effective, and I actually think it's much more politically um, effective, because then you're talking about really, you know, this, this, our country loves to talk about families, right? We are all, we love our families. Um, but the fact is we don't, uh, we don't really support them nearly enough. And so I think if you start by centering family support, instead of necessarily worrying too much about school readiness and things like that, that actually you'll get all of those benefits you want. Um, but so my proposal is, is somewhat to reframe where we're starting, what we're using as the unit of, of change, if you will. 
Yeah. How did you arrive there? Was it, was it related to maybe your personal experience that I know that you outlined in your book, but um, how, how did, how did we get there? Yeah, it was partially related to my personal experience of having young children and also thinking about like, you know, needing, uh, you know, part-time care in my situation, you know, because of a medical issue going on in my family. Uh, but also when I was thinking about looking through all the research, you know, and it's actually something we don't, I think, talk about a whole lot in our field, but I think we need to name it. You draw a big pie chart and you ask, where are the kids actually? Like right yeah. now, a snapshot. The fact is basically a third of kids are with their parents, and then, you know, with a stay-at-home parent. About a third of kids are, um, you know, in some sort of formal child care center or um, formal child family child care program. And about a third of kids are with some sort of informal care um, with a relative, like a grandparent, um, you know, with a neighbor or, or cobbling together some, you know, mix of the above. And so, you know, a lot of it is thinking about when we focus so much on the the child care center types the formal care, I think we lose the fact that actually that's not where two thirds of the kids are. So we need some kind of solution that encompasses, you know, strengthening that part of the sector, but doesn't stop at the water's edge. Right. You, yes. And you, you really kind of inspired a lot of reflection in me um, because and I, I started thinking about this in like a, okay, like this idea is so great. How do we get it across the finish line? I think that um, women need to have a lot of hard conversations with each other about how we organize and how we are kind of prone to judging other women's choices about how they raise their families and whether or not they decide to work outside the home. So I think that you know, part of what I gained from reading your book was reframing my thought about these, you know, these other home situations. And I never really thought about how we might be alienating some families in our advocacy. So I think this is a really important angle to consider, right? Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And then, you know, I think it goes both ways, right? Like there is both a segment of, and yeah, you're right, this primarily falls on the back of the shoulders of mothers. Mm -hmm. um, There's some segment of mothers who are currently, you know, in the workforce who would prefer to have working less hours or prefer to not be working at all so they can be home with their children. There is some proportion of women who are right now home with their children full time who prefer to be in the workforce and who can't because of childcare. Like it's this, you know, it basically is this choice constrainer, the way that we have it. Um, and so I do think that when we talk about the, this in a choice architecture, um, you know, it's, it's, it is, it resonates. It's really, um, you know, I can joke my uh, very, very conservative, um, you know, father-in-law, uh, you know, who is not uh, necessarily a fan of, you know, has his roles traditionally of where we're the role of mothers and women, you know, he's like, I'm cool with this. I'm actually okay with the idea of supporting, um, you know, publicly funded, you know, external childcare because, you know, you're proposing to also support parents who want to stay at home. And so I think yeah. you can, it sort of blunts the, um, it blunts the resistance when you talk about being able to meet everyone where they are. Yes, that's, that's so true. And you mentioned in your book, um, you're going to have to remind me the name of this bill, but during the Nixon administration. Yeah, the Comprehensive Child Development Act. Yeah, so I, I, I had already kind of studied that as mm -hmm. a, real, a real turning point in our 
kind of like journey towards childcare policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically this bill passed Congress and was vetoed by President Nixon yeah. uh, because he basically said that this concept of universal childcare is akin to communist child rearing. Um, (laughs) And I I have always kind of grappled with that interpretation of the need for childcare. So I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about some of the historical context of maybe some past uh, failed attempts like that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the two sort of generally accepted sort of like missed opportunities, if you will, for a better publicly support child care. One was World War II, so the Land yes. Act um, child care centers, whereas, you know, the men were all at the front, the women were needed in the factories, and so, you know, they authorized these sort of emergency child care centers. Um, and that went well, and actually they were pretty high quality, and then all the men came back and then all the, sort of the again, sort of antiquated notions of women's roles reared their heads and they pulled all the funding. One thing that's interesting and I've learned actually since I wrote that is in, you know, post-World War II Europe, they went in, that was actually the split point because the devastation to the continent was so massive that they needed the women to keep working, basically. Even when the men came home, mm. um, there were enough jobs to go around. Obviously, you know, mainland America didn't suffer any damage during World War II, so there weren't, like, all of a sudden, there was sort of a scarcity of jobs, and so, you know, with our lovely patriarchal culture, the men got to take them back. Um, so that was, that was a moment one, and then moment two, yeah, the G point was the 1971, and it was interesting because the reason that it was vetoed basically was from the... I mean, basically the religious right um, mm. at the time. Um, so Pat Robertson, um, who was Nixon's advisor, um, wanted his veto statement to be really strong. He wanted to shut it down. Basically, he didn't. They didn't want this idea of um, you know publicly supported childcare to go anywhere in the future. And so, yes, he talks about is very much framed in, in not about how much it costs, not about. Um, anything other than it would be the government basically reaching into the parental prerogative, the government interfering in the family formation, and you know, and under all of that, again, you know, it's the patriarchy, you know, rearing its head and the sexism that you know, this idea that women shouldn't be, um, you, you know, they should be with their young children. So those were two um, really missed opportunities. But the problem, I think, is also after '71, we never really tried again. I was listening yeah. to a talk once by uh, someone who was talking about basically the imagination of even some of our bolder bills in the past like 20-25 years doesn't really approach like what they tried in 1971 and you know we sort of uh, took that idea that okay I guess the child care is just a welfare program and, and we haven't sort of thrown that off yet and that's a big problem because uh, well, we can talk about more if you want, but that, that's sort of, unless we start moving out of a welfare frame, I'm, I, I want to worry we're never going to get very far. Right. And your proposal, how will it appeal uh, to these groups that may have been naysayers before? Yeah. So it goes back to what I was saying before about being able to make this choice based. So um, the idea, you can get at this point, even people who still think that basically, you know, mother shouldn't be working outside the home to to accept that like two thirds of kids under the age of six have all of their parents in the workforce. At least yeah. Um, and that, you know, it's not 1970 anymore. Like the economy is different. The world is different. Um, 
But I think one of the things that we can do is talk about this idea of also supporting stay-at-home parents. Because again, there are plenty of people who want that, who want to work part-time, who want to be home with their, their kids during the early years. That's fine. It's an equally valid choice. And so one of the things my proposal does is it basically says, you know, if you empower parents, they can either use the funds to go secure a slot at a high quality childcare center, they can go to the church or synagogue or mosque down the street, or they can, you know, essentially take a home care stipend, which is actually something that like the very liberal social democratic Nordic nations do with their publicly funded, publicly supported childcare systems. Um, it basically says if you're going to stay home with the kid, like that's still labor, like that is absolutely sure. still labor. For sure. And so there should be support. Yeah, absolutely. I think we could ask any stay at home mom in America if they enjoy working for free. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the answer is no. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of the appeal of this proposal. And as we're also kind of reflecting on the moment we're in and where we go from here, and I agree that we cannot go back in any way, childcare is a bipartisan issue. So I am really, really hopeful that we are approaching our moment to have some significant investment. Do you think we're almost there? I think we're on the moment of, I think we're starting up a new, <laughs> up a new mountain, I would say. I think we've, we've good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we do for the first time, I think, have a broad acknowledgement of how essential childcare is for both child development and for, you know, economic reasons for parents to be able to work for businesses, to be able to have full workforces. Um, you know, even before the pandemic, we had, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren making, you know, a sort of big childcare push, one of her first, you know, plans for that. Um, and we had, um, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders was basically calling for free childcare. So it, it was an issue. And now the pandemic has obviously shown a very, very, harsh light on just how much we need childcare. The reason I say we're starting up the mountain is I don't know that we've fully acknowledged that we need a new way of thinking about it. Because even if you think about President-elect um, Biden's plan, which I think is solid, very solid, um, but he's calling for basically $350 billion or so dollars into childcare over the next 10 years. If you mm -hmm. buy that out, you're talking about about 30 or so billion dollars a year. Mm -hmm. um, that is more than we do now. We have a 10 billion that goes in from the federal government now. You can't build a universal childcare system off of $30 billion. By most estimates, it's gonna cost you somewhere on the range of 200 to $400 billion. As well it should, public education costs us $700 billion a year. Right. Um, so I'm not sure we're yet on the cusp of like saying, you know what, childcare should be free. Like there's no reason why we decide that like, from ages five to 17, you know, we're going to cover kids' care and education, but from ages zero to five, like, you know, parents, good luck. Um, I think there's still, um, you know, we still focus on this idea of we're going to do this through subsidies, we're going to mm -hmm. do this through sliding scales, we're going to means test this, all, all of those things that go again with a welfare frame as opposed to a public frame of being a true social or public good. So I'm not sure we quite where we need to be, but I'm more hopeful than I have been was even two years ago writing the book um, about the possibility that we may be able to get there over the next, you know, decade or two. 
Right. And you, you, you're starting to touch upon this, um, but you did publish this uh, two years ago in 2018. Well, gosh, well, it's 2021. So you're probably coming yeah, up. 2019 it came out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we, we are navigating a coronavirus pandemic. So much has changed already in this very short time. How has COVID impacted this crisis even further? Yeah, so um, what COVID has done is basically start to shatter the childcare sector. I mean, just mm-hmm. to name it, like, you know, like it has um, caused the closure of, you know, hundred permanent closure of hundreds to thousands of programs. There are, you know, thousands more programs that are barely hanging on. Um, and it basically created this awful downward pressure on the sector because we're reaping sort of the ill-begotten fruits of the fact that we treat childcare more like a restaurant than like a public school. And mm-hmm. so when you don't have paying customers, all of a sudden, you know this well, right? Like you, you can't keep your doors open. Uh, and so what the pandemic has done, I think, is created this enormous um, this is an additional crisis of a crisis on a crisis um, in terms of just the sheer ability of there to be formal childcare programs. Um, and there already were scarcities, right? There, already, there was already childcare deserts, so it's going to be worse. Um, it is not doing anything good for the workforce, you know, where we already had a staffing sort of shortages and this has exacerbated that. And um, unfortunately, we have not yet seen policymakers fully respond to how important childcare is with the funding that's required to uh, to really stabilize the sector. So this last stimulus bill, right, we, uh, the advocates were asking for $50 billion, they got $10 billion. You know, music venues uh, got more uh, money, they got $15 billion than the entire childcare sector. So that's one of the other things I think is it's, it's continued to reinforce how I mean, how politically weak the sector is. And I don't mean that in any sort of like pejorative sense, but in just a descriptive sense that like, you know, we don't have the equivalent of the National Education Association or American Federation of Teachers. We don't have the equivalent of the American Manufacturers Association. Like we, it's not a sector that has a ton of political clout. And I think we're unfortunately seeing, again, the, the consequences of that um, starting to, to come up in pretty dire ways. Yeah, I, I actually, I usually do a little bit of a policy update on like the top of the episode, but I think we can, we should probably just embed it um, in the interview here because since I last released an episode, the second wave of um, COVID stimulus had passed. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that childcare will be see- receiving $10 billion. Um, you also hit on a point that just makes you want to scream uh, that, you know, the movie theaters and music venues are, you know, receiving more money than something that has definitely proven itself to be essential um, mm-hmm. this year. So, and, you know, even even with the previous stimulus related to childcare, I remember reading somewhere that Delta Airlines alone yep. received um, more stimulus than the entire childcare industry. Why is this investment inadequate and why does it need to be more? Yeah, um, so the simple fact is, like I said, the, the, the programs are bleeding money right now. So depending on what's ever you want to look at somewhere between, you know, a 
third to half of all programs are worried that they're going to be able to keep their functioning, you know, for uh, over the next coming months, um, because enrollment is down somewhere around 50%. You know, uh, this is a combination of parents not feeling comfortable sending their children because of COVID, um, parents, uh, parents being unemployed and therefore no longer needing uh, child care at the moment, um, right? So there are all of these, and earlier in the year, there were, you know, uh, sort of group size restrictions in most states, you know, before we knew sort of much about kids and COVID. So, so all these factors sort of combine the fact that very, very few programs are able to keep themselves operating at near full enrollment. And um, childcare finance is already so precarious that you really can't survive being at anything but full or nearly full enrollment for very long. Um, these are very quickly will sort of dump your budget into the red. So uh, the reason we needed more money is, is, is it's pure stabilization, right? Like basically you mm. know, pay staff, because that's another problem that we also programs as, as COVID is at such a high level of spread around the country right now, you know, staff, even though childcare centers themselves don't appear to be particularly high risk environments, they're just people are getting it right and getting exposed in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're seeing staffing crises happening as well, where, um, you know, a couple of teachers go out. And if you're, you know, a center that only has 10 teachers and two or three of your teachers are out for two weeks, like that's pretty devastating. Um, and so, but there are no subs because again, there's no money to hire subs. You're already paying these people basically minimum wage. So right. uh, and all of those factors without more money, we just can't, can't keep operating. Um, and that's gonna be, is that when we emerge from this pandemic, whenever that is, like it's gonna be a wasteland of care, uh, which is really, you know, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking for these educators that have been working so, so hard. And I mean, in many places they've never closed to talk about your, you know, COVID heroes, um, you've got, it's devastating for families who, you know, rely on these, uh, you know, centers and, and family child care programs to be able to work. Um, and it's devastating for the kids who, as we know, like rely on routine and yes. relationships and predictability. Um, so on all of those factors, um, you know, it's really devastating not to have enough funding. And then, you know, on a pure dollar sense, if you just want to get down to like, you know, raw economics of it, it's going to slow down the recovery. Um, yes. you know, we're going to have more and more mothers forced out of the, the workforce. I think something 800,000 women have been forced out of the workforce over the past couple of months um, because of childcare breakdowns. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really going to hamstring our ability to, to get back to, to where we were. Yes. And um, we are, we are at a turning point at this, at this moment. And although there was a snag, to, to say the very least, there was a snag in the process last night. <laughs> um, we are about to embark on a new administration. And you did mention um, uh, President-elect Biden's plan. I'm hoping you could maybe give a little bit of more detail to our listeners about that plan and maybe just your reaction to it and whether you think it's um, a, either a good first step or inadequate or making great progress or kind of just re your reaction to that? Yeah, um, no, you're right. This is going to be a new era, particularly now that, um, looks, you know, we know the Democrats are going to have full control. Patty Murray is the senator from Washington and who's been a longtime champion for child care. Um, she's the one of the lead authors of the Child Care for Working Families Act, which mm -hmm. is one of the, you know, bolder proposals out there. And she's going to chair the Senate committee 
that oversees these issues. So, so we do have, you know, more opportunities now than we have in a, a while. Um, so, so President-elect Biden's plan largely is to use that, that sort of 30 some odd billion dollars a year he's proposing to implement uh, most of that Child Care for Working Families Act. And at a, sort of a very core level, what that does is the idea is um, that no, um, no family should be paying more than 7% of their income uh, for child care costs. Um, and that basically would subsidize, the government will subsidize, you know, to make that happen. And if you're making under a certain percentage of the area and medium income, you're not paying anything. Um, and so there are other components to it, but, but fundamentally that's what it's trying to do. Um, again, I think that the 30 billion would be a solid first step. It is, not really enough to fully implement the Child Care for Working Families Act. Um, part of the problem too is that, you know, you, you need money not just to make things more affordable for families, but also to uh, be able to raise the wages of the workforce significantly. Yes. Um, and, you know, at some point you just, the, the math stops working there, um, you know, because it is, it's relatively, it is, you know, like I said, necessarily an expensive proposition. I mean, it pays for itself real quick, but it's, it's pretty expensive. So, uh, you know, I think it's solid. I would like to see this I like to think of it as a transition fuel <laughs> in some okay, ways. Okay. If, uh, you know, if ultimately, like, you know, to, to extend that analogy, if we're headed towards fully renewable, you know, net zero emissions, you know, by 2030, yeah. 2040, if, if we want to head towards a fully, you know, publicly funded system that's free for families where no educator is making less than like a solid middle class, you know, salary with benefits, like, yeah. Child Care for Working Families Act, like what, what President Biden is likely to, to try to push for is probably a, a good, you know, transition for people. Yeah, and I just want to circle back for a quick second about Senator Murray. Um, you had mentioned that she's going to hold some significant power, and I'm not sure if my listeners are aware that she used to be a preschool teacher. Um, so I just, I just find a lot of comfort in knowing that someone that has walked in early childhood educators shoes um, is making some pretty significant decisions. So I, I hope there's some positive, um, some positive outcomes there. From here, I think I want to, I've been asking my January guests these, this last little series of questions about um, kind of a like the year ahead and reflecting on the year we just lived through because uh, it was really, it was, it was something else. Uh, so like I said, I'm kind of like throwing my episode plan out the window and starting with <laughs> this because I feel like we, um, we had some really current, current issues to address. So I, I'm, I'm going to be doing these for the rest of the month. So I guess the first question would be, what did 2020 teach you? Uh. <laughs> this is a big question. Awesome. Um, it taught me many things. Like, I'll try, you know, I, I think uh, trying to distill uh, down to a few lessons. And I think one is certainly taught me in the ways that I don't think I fully appreciated before um, just how fragile our institutions are. Like, yeah. the, um, that's my not happy fungi answer. Like, I think that, I mean that both in terms of our response to the pandemic, um, you know, the fact that, I mean, yay, $900 billion in stimulus. They started talking about this in August. Mm -hmm. It took that long to get something done. It was needed. You know, we have kids going hungry, like, and they're just like, you know, 
tag yeah. over, you know, the price tag. Um, so that's one thing it taught me. It, it taught me how, um, in some, you know, it reinforced to me how everyday people can be just really step up in incredible ways. And I think it'll again cite our childcare educators that way. I mean, mm-hmm. there literally have been people like my children's childcare center, although they haven't been there the whole time, um, you know, it's attached to a health system here and they have never closed, not for like a day since all of this started because they've been caring for the kids of doctors and nurses and, you know, other, other personnel at our local hospital. Um, so that's, you know, a positive lesson. And then you know, the other thing I think we can't talk about 2020 and, and not talk about, I think it's reinforced the, the ways in which we are so far from racial equity and racial justice. In this yeah. Country. Um, and that, you know, it, that's not, well, that was not news to me. I think the, you know, I will certainly can own that as a white per middle class guy like that, uh, it was striking to me how much we need to continue to center that in every single mm-hmm. conversation that we mm-hmm. have. Yeah, I feel like before, you know, this past year, it's like, oh yeah, we we stormproofed our house. Like this is fine. Like we're we're ready for anything. And then like this humongous, like a crazy storm of a situation kind of just hit all of us. And you're like, oh. Maybe maybe we didn't do such a great job <laughs> kind of setting us up and maybe maybe we can't navigate this um, without additional investment. So I agree that I, I think that the curtains are drawn back yeah. a little bit. And I, I, I am definitely with you that, you know, maybe there was an awareness and an intellectual understanding. Um, but I'm definitely recentered. Uh, so I, I feel you there. Yeah. So what are you leaving behind in 2020? Uh. <laughs> We get very existential here. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, I know. It's very existential. I know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to leave behind incrementalism. That's a, it's like, yeah. I am, I am done with these half measures and quarter steps. Like the problems we're facing are so significant. I saw someone posting on Twitter and I thought this was spot on that like for a while now we've been like, we just need to get through this year. And you know, with this thing we're saying that like 2017, 2018, right? Like I remember people in 2019 being like, well, just need to get to 2020. And like, no, but actually maybe there's something fundamentally broken. You know, I'd call it an epoch. Like we're in a new age at this point. I think something has shifted, you know, a lot of these forces that we've been talking about, you know, this podcast and other people have been writing about are are coming to the fore and, you know, we need to chart a new path forward um, and really think, re like question everything basically question every yes. axiom yes and some of them may still hold but some of them aren't going to and i think that absolutely applies to childcare. um and so yeah that's what i'm leaving behind no more incrementalism i love it and it really does actually i literally i have the i have in latin i have a tattoo to my arm i have tabula rasa tattooed on my arm and i i I didn't know when I got it when I was like 24 years old that i'd be living through this and literally i do feel like the entire slate is wiped clean and there is no turning back. And that, that kind of does get me a little bit excited. Like I know it is a really stressful time, but I am really just trying to sit with it and see what we can do better. So with that, what do you hope for in 2021? I hope for in 2021, in addition to widespread vaccinations. <laughs> that, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, mean, I really do hope that we seize this moment. It's kind of what we talked about at the very top, actually, to not go back 
to wait. Like the, the power of inertia is enormous. It is going to be a tendency to do things the way that we did them before. Yes. And my hope is that we keep this feeling. We remember how awful this is right now. And like we sort of swear and act on making it so that we never, you know, never go back. And to some extent your analogy, maybe we realize instead of stormproofing our house, we actually need to like build a new house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love that. It basically knocked itself down, didn't it? So we might as well. (laughs) So we might as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And even let's, let's carry the analogy even further. Maybe we should really look at the foundation of the house too. (laughs) Maybe we got to like really unpack this in a way that we haven't before. And I'm excited to do it. And I hope you're as excited to be a part of it. I recommend your book, Crawling Behind, to anyone with a remote interest in childcare policy, but I'm probably going to send some direct links to some elected officials. Um, Can you tell our listeners where they can find your book? Yeah, easiest thing is um, either Amazon, Bookshop, um, you know, Barnes & Noble, just, you know, the search is all available, all the online booksellers that you you would use. Great. Thanks for uh, joining me. Also, thanks for weathering. We're talking a lot about storms. Weathering <laughs> the storm of my processing yesterday in real time. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to kind of like center myself and come back to just childcare policy because the yeah. whole thing felt so dire and sensitive as we were kind of navigating it. So I didn't know what the heck policy update I was going to give today after that all kind of started. So thankfully, um, although blood was shed on our Capitol and, you know, it was a really awful situation, um, our government kept working and hopefully that means they'll continue to keep working for us too. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. You had the opportunity to talk to you and appreciate your advocacy as well and your voice. Same to you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Elliot. I had such a great morning with him on what I thought was going to be a difficult day, but things are looking up. Uh, Keep an eye on social media because I think we're cooking up a giveaway of Elliot's book. Remember to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and like us on Facebook. Thanks.